Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Your heads with me once more before we dive into God's word together. Lord Jesus, we know that we are reliant on you for all things, um, and chiefly we are reliant upon you to hear your voice. Um, So may you grant us ears to hear, hearts to understand, and hands that move according to your purposes as we consider what you've given us in your word. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So right now, there's a number of our campus ministry, Grizzly Christian Fellowship, a number of their students and of the staff that are rolling down to Southern California for our annual summer leadership project. And I remember the first time we partnered with our Southern California brothers in Christ, and I remember that it was, there's this jarring contrast between the students we brought down from the University of Montana, and specifically the students we worked with at the University of San Diego State. For instance, one of our students, Garrett, who is back there clicking buttons for us today, uh, he is from Winnet, Montana, which if you don't know, you're normal, and uh, it's because it is a small town in eastern Montana with a population of 182, meaning that when Garrett came to Montana, this was the metropolis or came to Missoula. This was the metropolis. This was the highest population density he knew about. He's a science major, and our community at the university consisted of students that were like him, generally from smaller towns, generally more soft-spoken and reserved, wilderness-minded individuals. And so it was really a joy of mine um, to be on campus at Summer Leadership Project when we the, the GCF van first rolled in to the complex. So they had driven all through the night to get there, and they come into this wildly busy San Diego with a population of 1.4 million people, and the van goes through the gate and is immediately swarmed by what we called the Hype Committee. The Hype Committee was a crew of dudes in neon brotangs, fresh off their fraternity pledge, holding signs, riding on skateboards down the driveway, throwing themselves onto the hood of the car, and yelling while trying not to mess up their hair. And there was this distinct moment where Garrett didn't have to say anything, but I looked into his eyes, and he had this statement very clearly that just said, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. And I imagine... Humor aside, that there's all sorts of times in our lives where we felt that, where we end up somewhere, we walk in someplace, and we have that feeling in our gut that we don't belong. Maybe it's a work event, maybe for you it's family reunions, maybe even it's here at church or community group or a Bible study. But we know times when we feel the ache of not belonging and the discomfort it can bring into our life. In fact, one of the more important questions you could ask when in the context of any community, is not why do I belong, but how do I belong? This could be asked from both postures, right? It could be asked from those who are inside, uh, what or how or what must I do to belong? Or it can be asked from those who, or from the outside, how or what can I do to belong? Or from the inside, looking around like Garrett was, here he is in the midst of this, and he's like, what do I share in common with these people? How do I really belong here? And from the outsider looking in, we see our anxiety. Can I belong? And from the insider looking at himself, we see our fear. 
how can I continue to belong? How will I continue to have longevity in this place? I met with a young lady earlier this week who has gone through a hard season of life in the last year. She's encountered sin against her, and there's been hostility in her own friend circle. And at the end of our meeting, through tears, she just said, I just want to find a place to belong. You see, introvert or extrovert, Christian or non-Christian, Californian or Montanan, we all want belonging because we want the peace that comes with our belonging. And Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus some 2,000 years ago, and even then, these desires and fears manifest themselves in tribalism and hostility. Paul wrote to the church that he might help them understand not only how the gospel changes their relationship with God, but how the gospel changes the relationship you have with one another. Last time when we were in Ephesians, last week we had a guest preacher, and so the time before that, we started Ephesians chapter 2. And in the first half of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is stressing how Jesus has restored us to God. And in this latter half that we're looking at today, he's stressing how Jesus has restored us to each other. In other words, it's our restoration to God through Jesus Christ, which helps us belong not only to each other, but belong in our world. And with that said, there are three things we're going to see today as we work through the text with Johnny just read for us. And this is what we're going to see. In verses 11 through 12, we're going to see the need for true belonging. In verses 13 to 16, we are going to see the means of true belonging. And in 17 through 22, we are going to see the fruit of true belonging. The need of belonging, the means of belonging, and the fruit of belonging. Now, in Ephesus, and in most of the letters that we see Paul writing in the New Testament, there is this underlying issue in the early New Testament church of racism. And that's because the people of God was at one point this ethnic nation. This is the nation of Israel. That if you've read the Old Testament, it tracks how the nation of Israel is progressing and growing and how God is communicating to it. And its origin started way back in Genesis when God finds this man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a nation. You're going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. You will be my people and I will be your God. And God enters into this covenant with Abraham, and as it continues, Abraham and his descendants receive specific covenant signs. It was that the offspring, the male offspring of Israel, should be circumcised to be physically distinct from the nations around them. But then also we see progressively God giving his covenant law to his people. The law is often the shorthand for the whole Old Testament, but specifically it's the rules and regulations that God gave to his people that dictate not only that their worship would be distinct, but that their lives would be distinct, even the foods they eat would be distinct, and even the houses that they live in would be distinct from the nations that were around them. And that's how it was. To become a people of God, you had to convert to Judaism. You had to be circumcised. You had to uphold the law. But when Jesus came in the gospel, we saw this when we went through the the book of Matthew, that all of a sudden people from other nations began to follow Jesus. These other nations, these outsiders, were called Gentiles. In fact, in the text we're going to look at today, the word Gentile in Greek is just ethnos. And you hear ethnic in there. It's just other ethnicities which are not Jews. And so now that Jesus has come and he has gone to the Gentiles and they have begun to follow him, Gentiles are now following the God of the Jews. In many of these churches, the tension is palpable. The Jewish believers are frustrated 
that the Gentiles can just waltz into their worship services and worship God without having any of the covenant signs. And then the Gentiles are probably frustrated for two reasons. On one hand, they're self-conscious that they're not Jews. They know they look different. They know they talk differently. They know they act differently. But then on the other hand, they're frustrated at the elitism that the Jews are practicing towards them. And it's in this tension that's in Ephesus and it's in uh, the church in Galatia and all these churches that Paul is writing to that Paul is now going to turn uh, with our first point, which is the need for true belonging. Paul knew that in the church of God, there is no place for racial, financial, or sociological infighting. And Paul is going to address this need by focusing on the perceived problem of belonging, only to kind of Jesus juke them back into the bigger problem of belonging that's behind them. And we see this in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And so here, Paul is intentionally highlighting the petty name-calling that's going on in the church. He says, you Gentiles are called the uncircumcised by those whom you call the circumcised. And it might sound weird that these are the names they called each other back then. This unique description was a common insult given to other people. But it had long been in the history of Israel that this was the moniker that denoted those who were outside and those who were inside. Those who were uncircumcised were always the others. It's like in Missoula, how we view anyone from Butte. They are the others. They are here, but they don't belong here. I heard one person say that if they got in a car crash in Butte, you were to carry him outside of the city limits so that he doesn't have to die in Butte. Like we get this distinction there. And this distinction existed with how Jewish people understood those who were uncircumcised. King Saul in 1 Samuel uh, is being overrun in battle. And he chooses to fall on his sword because he cannot stand the idea of being killed and tortured by those uncircumcised Philistines. They were the other. They were less than. They were not part of God's covenant people. But did you see how Paul pointed out how inconsequential this entire debate is? Did you notice the repeated words? We're reading the Bible. We always want to pay attention to where repeated words are and why the author is using those words. And look back at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. See that both circumcised and uncircumcised are dealing with matters only related to the flesh. You Jews call the Gentiles uncircumcised because they are unchanged in the flesh. And you Gentiles call the Jews the circumcised because they have been changed in the flesh. But what you don't understand, Paul is communicating, is that all of these issues are only skin deep. They don't affect the heart. They're not real Issues. He says the problem is not in the flesh of the Jew and not in the flesh of the Gentile. The problem is in your heart. We have, and there are, physical distinctions that Paul is getting at here. But behind all of these physical perceived needs is a deeper spiritual reality that is far greater than Jews and Gentiles 2,000 years ago, but actually reach into our time today. 
And this is where Paul identifies the spiritual reality behind all of it. And we're going to read verse 11 and verse 12 together. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so here we begin to see the reason why all of us desire to belong. We desire to belong. We know that ache of not belonging because we were made to belong with God and with God's people. Now remember, Ephesians 2 is split into two parts. The first half dealing with verses 1 through 10, dealing with how Jesus has restored us to God. The second half being with how our sin or how Jesus restores us to one another. And here, it's interesting to step back and look at these two passages and notice the language and the experience that Paul is using to describe sin. If you think of sin, if you had to describe to somebody what sin was and what the consequences were, how would you describe it? Just think in your head for a second. Then I want us to consider how Paul speaks of sin in Ephesians 2. In verses 1 through 10, we looked at this last time, Paul stresses the inability and helplessness we have in our sin. He says we were dead. We were following something else. We were controlled by someone else. We were slaves to our own passion. We were by nature children of wrath. But today, he stresses something distinct. He stresses the relational problem of sin. Did you see that? In the text, if you look back, you hear these words that we understand because we felt them before. He says three things. There are three problems that sin brings that can be defined relationally. It is that you are separated from Christ, you are strangers from the people of promise, and you are without hope, which is to be without God in this world. This is really important because we don't often think of sin in terms of our inability or in terms of its relational aspect. We think of sin in terms of its grossness, its innate badness, right? The more nasty the sin, the more sinful we think of it to be. And we often think of sin as these spontaneous, isolated actions that we have. It's not really me when I do that. That's not me, right? I was just a weak moment, and I became sinful. But we don't see sin as this comprehensive inability we have to follow God. But then additionally, when we think about sin, we depersonalize it. It's like sin is this sterile violation of God's command that, sure, we don't measure up, but what does it really matter? But here, Paul is stressing the relational aspect that is actually hurt and disrupted in all of our sin. Paul here wants to help us understand sin by helping us feel its consequences. Separated, estranged, alienated, without hope. Whether we understand God is holy and sin is the opposite of that, we understand these experiences, don't we? We know what it's like to feel each of these emotions. Our sin separates us from Jesus. We hear terrible stories going on at the border right now of children being separated from their parents, and our sin has separated us from Jesus. 
Sin makes it impossible to belong to God's covenant community because it removes you from the blessing of promise that God gives to that community. You might be able to mix about with God's people. You can come in here today, whether you're a believer or not, but without God's promise being given to you, you will always be a stranger. And it's almost that it's inside of these groups that you feel the most alone. You can be with God's people and still feel estranged from them, still feel, feel alienated from them. And that's where we feel this ache of where do I belong? And lastly, our sin keeps us at arm's length from hope. Because when we have sin, we have no access to God. We cannot get to God, which means we cannot get to hope. We cannot make sense of our world. We cannot understand ourselves. We have no promise of salvation. Now, I want to be clear here. Paul is not saying that believers in Jesus never feel separated from Christ, that they never feel like strangers in the gathering of God's people, or that they never have hope, or that they are never without hope in the world. But what Paul is saying is that it is only believers who understand how the gospel changes all three of these experiences in ways that the world itself could never do. Because the truth of the matter is, there are insiders and there are outsiders when it comes to being God's people. By nature, this is what Paul was getting at last time we were here. It's what he's getting at here. In our flesh, in our sin, in our nature, we are separated from God. We don't belong to him. We are relationally removed from him. And this is true for each and every one of you who are in here today. There is or there was a real gap of belonging that existed in each of you. Each and every one of us will stand before God one day, and those who are on the outside of Christ, those who do not belong to God's people of promise, those who are without the hope of God, will face judgment for their act of rebellion against him. And it's because of that eternal reality that we should really pay attention to where and what our feelings of belonging and not belonging point us to. Because here Paul is calling us to consider the hope that is behind all of these realities. The question we need to ask when it comes to you being a believer or a non-believer, if we want comfort, is asking that question, how do we belong? How do outsiders become insiders? How do those separated, estranged, and isolated become anything other than that? Because to summarize Paul's point is that each and every one of us has a crisis of belonging. We feel as outsiders because we really are separated from Jesus, estranged from God's people, and without God himself. But this is where in verse 13, Paul brings this indescribable change to bear on our condition. In fact, his next five words are so crucial to how we understand belonging and acceptance before God. And look at verse 13. It says this, But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have our second point here today, which is the means of true belonging. In the crisis of belonging, it's Jesus, and it's only Jesus who can ever do anything about it. We can search the ends of the earth to try to find belonging, to try to find peace, to try to remove that hostility. But here, Paul is holding up the one person who has not only promised to do it, but has actually done it for us. 
Last time when we were in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, we saw this neat summary of the gospel that Paul had weaved in, where it was just this. And you, but God. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God was rich in mercy to you in Jesus Christ. And we see that exact same pattern here in this text, don't we? We see, remember that you were in the flesh. But then he goes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near. Remember you, but now in Christ. Now remember, Paul is writing to believers. Paul's not hosting an evangelistic Bible study. He's not out on a vast missions frontier. He's writing to the church, to people who claim to follow Jesus, who genuinely are converted, which means this. If you're a Christian in here today, you need to know what Paul's assuming, and that is this, that we are often prone to forget what Jesus has done for us. We are often prone to assume the gospel where the Bible is calling us to take hold of it actively and to remember it. And this is so important because in this passage, we actually see Jesus solving all three of the problems that we saw. Our problems were separated from Jesus, outside of his covenant community, and without God. But in this text, all three of those things are reconciled. And we're going to look at all three of those ways, and this, this is the three things we are going to see in this portion, is we're going to see that the blood of Jesus brings us near, the work of Jesus creates a new people, and the cross of Jesus reconciles us to God. This is the first point where Paul says, the blood of Jesus brings us near. The blood of Jesus brings us near. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now in the Old Testament, there were the tribes of the uncircumcised and the circumcised, or the classes of the clean and the unclean. But there was also this designation of those who were near and those who were far off. And we see this kind of epitomized in Exodus chapter 20, where God's people have gathered to Mount Sinai, and God is giving Moses the law, and Moses was God's chosen prophet to communicate the truths of God to God's people. But look at the distinction that was between here in terms of distance and approach to God. This is verses 18 through 21. Now when the people saw the thunders and the flashes of lightning, this is all happening on top of the mountain, and they're at the base of it, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You see that nearness and that far-offness that God's presence naturally vets inside of us? Because of the sin that the people had, they were fearful to go to God. They did not want to go to God because they would die. And God had actually even made it clear, you come up to the base of the mountain, but you can't go on the mountain. You can't touch the mountain because you will die. I am holy and you are not. But God calls his chosen servant Moses to come near and to speak to God. You see, Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus came to draw near those who were far off with the power of his blood. 
He came to those who had sin which stood between them and God, a gap that they could never bridge. And he died so that they might be brought closer to God. His blood really brings us near to God. It bridges the distance of our soul. Do you understand that Jesus' blood is not this disconnected doctrine of atonement? It is that. It does cover your sin. It does please God and that his justice is upheld. But do you understand that it is for you? It is personally poured out for you to bring you near to God. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're no longer considered far off by the flesh or who you were before Jesus came. Instead, you are covered in the blood of Jesus, which means you now share his identity. You share his life. You share the peace the Son had with the Father. In Jesus, we are no longer separated, but we are actually joined in the most intimate way because his blood counts for us. If you're not a believer in here today, this is what you need to hear. You can't rightly proceed to any point of application in this text unless you first understand that belonging starts with Jesus. If you don't belong to Jesus, if his sacrifice on the cross was for someone else and not for you, then there is no way for you to ever find true belonging. You will never be able to belong to God without Jesus. And what we often forget, but what this text shows, is that you will never be able to belong to men without Jesus. Have you considered that? Have you looked upon the work that Jesus has done and seen it as your own in faith? If you haven't, I encourage you to find somebody in here today. Find the person sitting next to you. Part of membership at the church is we want our members to not only know what the gospel is, but to be able to give it away and walk you through it. So please talk to somebody about that if that's you after church. Or find an elder. They wear nice badges to skip the first. You don't have to ask them what their name is, which is hard if you're an introvert like me, because now I have to come up with another like, icebreaker for you. Let me go back to my notes. Uh, talk to somebody else. Uh, about what this means because we want to help you understand this. Secondly, where we were once strangers to God's people, the work of Jesus now creates a new people. The work of Jesus creates a new people. This is verses 14 and 15. For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Now for most of us, when we look at those three problems that Paul introduced, separated from God, strangers from God's people, and without God, we very rarely tend to view our whole problem and the whole solution as encompassing all three. What we often do is we look at the Bible and we see how Jesus' blood has drawn us near and we see where Paul's going to get that we are now reconciled to God and that is the change we want and so that's actually where our relational understanding of the gospel ends. I've been made right with God, that's it. But that's not where Paul is stopping here. In fact, that's not the point of Paul's message. If all Paul wanted to do was to stress how Jesus has restored you to God, he already did that wonderfully and perfectly in verses 1 through 10. But the point of Paul here is to talk about how the relational restoration we have in Jesus creates a new people who live together in a gospel community. 
Paul here is beginning to and going to talk more so in the following chapters about the nature and application of the church. And this makes sense because Paul is writing to a church, and he's not writing to de-church the church. He's writing to affirm what God has done in bringing these people together. And so the question is, is why is it so easy to understand belonging to Jesus and belonging to God without understanding the implication that has on belonging to his church? Well, Paul tells us, hostility. The church is broken. We don't always get along. We don't always see eye to eye. We don't always like the same things. And because of that, we're prone to leave the church, to go to another church, or to drive others out of our own church. But this is where Paul is most practically applying the gospel for us today, to the church in Ephesus and to this church in Missoula and all the churches in Missoula and across the world. Look at how the gospel changes the way we understand our relationship to one another, again in verses 14 through 15. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Jesus made two into one, made hostility into peace by fulfilling the law. Now, the law of God was that legal document we looked at that God says, this is what makes you distinct. This is what makes you spiritually distinct and physically distinct. And in this passage, Paul also refers to the law as this dividing wall of hostility. Well, why would God's law? God's law is good. Paul, in other places, affirms the goodness of the law. And so how is it that this good thing that God has given to us can become a thing which produces hostility? And how do we, as we read and treasure the Old Testament as God's word, not come to that same end? Well, because this is how the law was being applied in the New Testament church and how in subtle ways we can apply it to our own church today. And it was this. You Gentiles, say the Jews, if you do not dress like a Jew, eat like a Jew, worship like a Jew, or speak like a Jew, you don't get the privileges of worshiping the God of the Jews. To be a Christian, you had to look, act, speak, talk, dress a specific way. And that was what made you worthy of God's covenant promise. But there was a problem here. And that promise is communicated if you look back through this section and see how many times Paul is using the word both. Is that both groups had a problem. Not even the Jews in their law keeping and their external ordinances and their circumcision could keep the law of God well enough to earn his favor. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 4, God is speaking to his people, to the Jews. He's talking about the way they fulfill the law and the way they follow the rules of circumcision. But God gets frustrated and he says, circumcise your hearts. The physical distinctions that I'm giving you, you are following, but the spiritual reality behind it is completely gone from you. You need more than a physical distinction to be my people. You need a spiritual distinction. Something needed to solve even the Jews' distance between them and God. And this is why Jesus came. Jesus came, fully God, fully man, as a Jewish man who fulfilled the law of God perfectly. 
He met every ordinance the law gave, every command for clothing, for food, for housing. Jesus fulfilled it to a T. And in so doing, Paul says he abolished it. It has been fulfilled. Jesus said this back in Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so when we hold these two texts in tension, Matthew 5, 17, and this text in Ephesians, that it was in Jesus' perfect fulfilling of the law that the law has been abolished. It has been done away with. Meaning that anyone who comes to Jesus in his blood comes with the full, perfect fulfillment of the law being applied to you. What does this mean when it comes to us understanding hostility with one another? It means that anyone who comes to Jesus in his blood comes with the full righteousness of Jesus. How can Jews belong to God's covenant? Because Jesus fulfilled the law. How can Gentiles belong to God's covenant? Because Jesus fulfilled the law. How can you belong to God's covenant? Because Jesus fulfilled the law. This is why the early church fathers called Christians the third race. They're no longer Jews or non-Jews. They're Christians. And this is why this is important. If we fail to see that Jesus has fulfilled the law of God, then we will always view our brothers and sisters through the lens of comparison and hostility. I'll say that again. If we refuse to see, if we fail to see that Jesus has fulfilled the law of God perfectly, then we will always view our brothers and sisters in faith through the lens of comparison or hostility. And this can manifest itself by saying on the highest level that you'll only go to a church where the people look like you, act like you, talk like you, and the music suits your own fancy. But the barometer of God's covenant people is gospel and growth in Christ, not the standards of our own likes or proclivities. The standard is what Jesus has done for us. If we fail to see that, we'll see people who are worse off than us and we'll triumph over them. And I'm not as bad as this dude. And we'll see people who are doing better than us and we'll have hostility because they're making us look bad. But if we see that Christ has fulfilled it perfectly, we actually have peace because the standard has already been applied to us. We have freedom from comparing ourselves to others because Jesus has given us already the infinite and permanent standing before God. He is the standard that we take and assess to one another. And so the standard is, are you in Christ? Are you growing in Christ? Are you applying the salvation of Christ? And if so, there's infinite, unending peace. You see, the church should be a place where sociological, financial, and ethnic differences mean so very little. And I pray that this is true here. We are a church in a predominantly white state, and so it's really easy to think that we don't struggle with these barriers of belonging. But I pray that that's really true because the gospel has changed us and not just true because it remains unchallenged. Think of it this way. When you see people coming into your church or into your community group 
Does the gospel actually change the way you view them? Do you treat them differently if their clothes are bought from a different place, if their skin is a different color, if they look poorer or more well-off? Because if so, we might be trying to build up what Jesus himself has already torn down. There is a deeper sense of belonging that can only be felt in a church when we realize that Jesus and Jesus alone has fulfilled the law and counted it to us in his blood. And this is where we see the last work, that the cross of Jesus reconciles us to God. We were once without God, but the cross of Jesus reconciles us to God. Look with me at verse 16. So it picks up in mid-thought that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, why is Paul going back to the gospel here? We came through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which is straight gospel, no filler. We get then to where he says, the blood of Jesus has drawn you near. And then he shifts to this interpersonal aspect. Jesus has removed the wall of hostility. We now have peace with one another. And now he's going back to how Jesus has reconciled us to God. Why is he doing this? What does he want us to learn from this? Is he just really bad at linear thoughts? Paul struggles with linear thoughts, but that's not what he's wrestling with here. He's coming back to the gospel for two reasons. The first is that we must see that the gospel brings us full and total acceptance before God. We are brought back to God. We are reconciled to God through Jesus in a beautiful way. I can make my kids reconcile after a fight. And it's one of these weird things that my wife and I love to do with our kids. They have loathed hugging each other. And so we kind of get amusement making them hug each other. It's like this, like, ah! It's like their skin burns when they do it. And they're hugging and they've forgiven each other, but they don't enjoy it. Do you ever have a feeling that's how it is with God? Like he has to forgive you because Jesus died for it. But when we go to embrace him, it's kind of like, ah! Is how God sees us. That's not the gospel. There is this inclusion. God now loves you as he loved his son because you carried the scent of Christ to him. You are covered in the blood of his son. There is no arm's length or artificial distance between the children of God because we share of the blood of Jesus. Jesus has reconciled you to the Father. But what's interesting is where this section ends is Paul actually goes corporate again. He says that all of you have been brought near in this same way. Together we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And this is the second point. And this is the point that Paul is really emphasizing here for the church. And that's this. If Jesus has reconciled the cosmic sin that stood between you and God, then doesn't that give us the ability to remove the hostility that stands between two broken sinners in the church? If Jesus has solved the biggest relational problem in the history of the world, can't he help us solve our own relational problems with our brothers and sisters? You see, we have hope for reconciliation to others because the gospel gives us hope that it can be bridged at the costly expense of Jesus' blood. Meaning that the church, this new body where two have become one, 
is not a place where there will be no tension, not a place where there will be no hurts, not a place where there will be no sin, but it is the place where we can actually process it rightly, where we can begin to make wrongs right by the blood of Jesus, where we can come and we can have repentance and confession and true reconciliation because Jesus has done that for us in God. We can have peace with others because Jesus has given us peace with God. As Paul says, as much as possible to us, seek peace. And so I have a question for you today, and that's, is there someone in your life, perhaps even in this church, that the gospel is compelling you to seek peace with? And if there is, I would encourage you to pray, to go to God, and then come to your community group leader or another elder, and let us help make steps in the right direction in that area. Would you think about that today? As we focus on our 50-50 legacy of being a, a healthy church, a Missoula church, an ascending church, if those things, that, that flourishing, that peace, that gospel centrality does not trickle into these relationships, it certainly will not trickle out of these walls. But the gospel changes all of this. I mentioned earlier a young lady who told me this week that she just wanted a place to belong. And in God's providence, I was meeting her the very same week I'm writing a sermon on this text and I told her what I think is Paul's very point in this text, and that's this. That if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you belong to God, and you belong to God's people. You see, to truly belong to God's people means you must belong to God. And to truly belong to God means you must belong to God's people. Isn't that a beautiful message? That we belong to God. And even though Jesus himself has risen and is no longer here, and God is invisible and not gazed upon, we don't make idols of God. He is absent, but he has given us this physical, real, relational place where we can come and we could join arms with one another and remind each other of the hope and the love and the restoration that Jesus has given us towards God. This is the life of the church that was given to us as a gift. And this is the last part of the text today as Paul begins to apply this belonging to the life of the church. And this is our last point today, the fruit of true belonging. The fruit of true belonging. What does a church, what does a church who understands what Jesus has done relationally, what does it look like? What marks a church when they so understand that Jesus has brought us back to God and torn down the wall of hostility between one another? Well, here just in closing, Paul gives three quick points of application. First is that churches that have been brought near through Jesus become churches who preach gospel unity in Christ. Churches that have been brought near through Jesus become churches who preach gospel unity in Christ. Look at verses 17 through 18. And Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see, Jesus was the greatest missionary the world has ever known. We might send somebody to the ends of the earth. They might go from Missoula to Katbandu. But Jesus went from heaven to earth. He went further than we could ever send. And I pray God sends members of this church. I pray that God sends kids that are hearing God's word in that children's ministry to the corners of the earth with the gospel. But no one will be sent further than Jesus was sent to come to us who were far off and proclaim peace. 
so that we might be restored to God. It is precisely because Jesus preached peace to us who are near and peace to those who are far off that we as a church are dedicated to gospel proclamation as broadly as we can be. Paul's point is this. If everyone who comes to Christ comes through the same spirit, that you were saved by the same spirit that a Muslim in the Middle East might come to Christ means that there is no distinction for who we should and shouldn't share the gospel with. That if the individual is made in the image of God, it is our joyful obligation to proclaim to them the wonderful riches of grace that are in Jesus Christ and God's immense love for them in the gospel. We don't get to pick and choose based off what we see or where they live if they are worthy of hearing the gospel. And it is the call of the Christian church to lay aside our own rights, our own comfort, and our own security to tell others what Jesus has done. Do not neglect to think evangelistically about those who are near, your family, your friends, your coworkers, and those who are far off. Perhaps God is calling you to another people or tribe to proclaim his glory. Second, churches who are made one in Jesus are churches who stress true belonging. Churches who are made one in Jesus are churches who stress true belonging. Look with me once more at verses 18 through 19. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see, there's another reversal. You're once strangers, but now you're fellow citizens. Now you're members of God's household with the rest of the saints. When we belong to God, we are belonging to his people at a wonderful, intimate level that truly binds us to one another. Think of it this way. Uh, I have a sister. She is a woman. I'm a man. She loves Big Dipper. I love Sweet Peaks. She likes bad movies. I like good movies. She likes tea. I like coffee. For all purposes, we really share very little in common. But when we get together, there's never a worry about having something to talk about or feeling like we belong to each other. Why? Because we're family. Because we share the same belonging in the same household. As a church, there will be times where you might be eating burritos afterwards or at a potluck or at a community group, and you begin to talk to somebody, and you quickly realize that you share nothing in common. We're like, this is going to be great. I can talk to this person about sports. They've never watched sports. We can go back and get a cup of coffee. They don't even like coffee. We can go to a park with our family. They don't even have kids. And by human standards, we say, well, see you later. But it's because we belong to the family of God that we have a belonging outside of this cheap belonging where we can actually go to one another and we can ask questions that get at this belonging level. And we can say, how is your soul? How is your walk with Jesus? Tell me about when you became a believer. If we want to be a church that celebrates true belonging, we need to understand that it's not burritos and coffee and t-shirts or sports that unite us together. It is the very blood of Christ. And if we refuse to see people at that level, 
then what we display to the world will always be a veneer of cheap grace and low belonging, which is not distinct from anything this world can offer. But what Jesus has done for us is something this world could never offer. So application, I challenge you this week, I challenge you after this service to not be afraid to talk to people who are different than you and to know them at a level of gospel familiarity. And as we do this, we'll begin to grow as we help each other follow Jesus better. And this is the last point. Churches that have been reconciled to God become churches who display God's glory. Look with me at Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. Members of a household built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Everything we do here as a church, we do by the power of God. Everything that happens here in this church happens by the Spirit of God. Everything we do here as the church, we do for the display of Jesus to the nations. Meaning that the greatest joy of our church is together, not just gathering, but growing in our ability to proclaim the mercy and the hope of the God who gave us mercy and hope. That we come together as broken people, but individually displaying the whole of Christ to our world. Our world has a crisis of belonging. There is hopelessness, estrangement, and isolation on every corner. But the church is in a unique position to come together to display hope to the hopeless, love to the loveless, and true belonging to those who are outsiders. And we do this only in Christ, for God, and by his spirit. That's the promise, isn't it? That in the mundane works of the church, we do it in Christ, for God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is no human trifle. This is no cheap belonging. This is life in the church for the glory of God and the love of those around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make us into the church that you have called us to be. We thank you that we who were not Jews, we who were separated from your covenant promise have been brought in by the blood of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that your work on the cross is enough for Jews and Gentiles, Missoulians and Africans, Canadians and Guatemalans. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that we learn to preach your gospel broadly, know your church intimately, and display your glory clearly as your covenant people. We pray you help us to see, to know, and to do. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.